This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. some bad news. I know uh, this is going to crush the hopes of many of you who were hoping for a new day in America. I know this is going to come as a kick in the gut for any of you that believed that America had a promise of a better tomorrow. But This is the first show uh, that we have done in 2024 that I can tell you that former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson is no longer a presidential candidate. Yes, that's right. Governor Asa Hutchinson has dropped out of the race for the presidency, and I'm sure he and the 108 people that voted for him in Iowa on Monday are just despondent. But somehow they will find a way to soldier on. Now, I'm poking fun because, honestly, I don't think most people realized that Asa Hutchinson was even running. But I don't I really applaud everybody that gets involved in the political process. And unlike some other people that have been running this year, I think Asa Hutchinson, even though I disagree with him on a whole bunch of issues and would never vote for him. I think he is somebody that has dedicated the bulk of his life to public service. Here's somebody that genuinely was independent. Here's somebody that clearly is very intelligent. And here's someone that, uh, you know, put his record out there before the voters. And if this was another era in Republican electoral politics, he might have done much better. But he's out. I'm sure a lot of you are crushed. Now, uh, we covered a little bit of the Iowa situation yesterday. There's one aspect that we didn't get to that I'd like to touch upon, and I'd like your your view of it, because I kind of am of two minds about this. I'm a bit ambivalent about it. So obviously we all know Donald Trump won by a landslide and that it was easy to see that he had won by a landslide. But what happened in Iowa yesterday is similar to what's happened in other presidential elections, including what they allege happened in 2000 with the Florida, this panhandle state of Florida, which is the media declared a winner and not just, you know, um, Fox News or, you know, CBS. They all did. One by one, all of the media entities declared a winner in Iowa before many people had even voted, including at the caucus site You had people that were just showing up and they were getting notifications on their phones saying that Trump had won Iowa. I do have to tell you, I I mean, look, I don't love the media holding back information that they 
have, which is what essentially would have happened here, because they base the numbers on who won these elections on what they call entry polls. They ask people as they're going into caucus, who are you going to caucus for? And then when they found that the overwhelming majority of people were going to caucus for Trump, they all reported that uh, Trump had won. But I think it's pretty screwed up for before people even get to vote or caucus, excuse me, that the media is declaring the election over. It, it could have absolutely had an impact. I, I don't know what the impact would have been. Could be if uh, people thought the election was or the caucus was competitive, you would have seen Trump have an even greater percentage of victory or you might have had people that were for DeSantis or Haley choose to stay home and not even bother caucusing because they, you know, got the notification, oh, it's over, Trump already won. And especially for a party that is always going on about election interference, and for this bit of, I don't know, putting your thumb on the scale before people have even gone to caucus, it really is, I think, really inappropriate for the media to do this even though they have the information and i'm generally an advocate of putting all this information out there when they have it and letting the people decide what's important i think this has a terrible effect on civic participation now already the caucus which i know it's iowa's thing they're not going to change it anytime soon but the iowa caucus is already incredibly undemocratic and unrepresentative of the population as a whole because you know, if you live in a state that has a primary, what do you do? You want to go out and vote for Donald Trump. You take five minutes, go to your local poll site. I mean, putting aside the mail-in voting. You go to your local poll site, you vote for Donald Trump, and you go home. It takes about five minutes. In the case of the Hawkeye Hawkeye, you have to, after work, around, you know, 5.30, 6 o'clock, 6.30, 7 o'clock, depending on what what the specific rules are, you have to be prepared to be available that very time and really give up your whole night for two or three hours. So some reporters spoke to people that said, yeah, they would have caucused and they would have caucused for Trump or, you know, they probably had varying, varying candidates that they preferred. They would have caucused, but they had to work. And they, these are people who in many instances would have been available during the day, but were not available at night to devote their whole evening, essentially, to going and caucusing. By the way, you know, a fun fact, we've been talking a little bit about youth voting. In Iowa, if you are 17 years and six months old, you uh, can can caucus. You can go and participate in the caucus. But if you're 17 years and five months old, you can be put in jail or prison for five years for caucusing. So what a difference a month makes. But only 15% of registered Republicans in Iowa caucused on Monday night. It's interesting and it's unique. And the thing I like about it, as if I was a taxpayer in Iowa, is the public doesn't pay for it. This is all put on by the parties themselves. You'll go to a, a caucus site and they'll essentially pass the hat around for everybody to kick in a little bit for the auditorium that they're using. But it is also something that probably disadvantages Trump. His voters, Trump's voters, skew largely to the working class and to the lower class, meaning a lot of them probably have to work, including at night. So the margin of victory that Trump would have had if there was a primary 
like a lot of other states have, most other states, probably would have been even bigger because you would have seen a much larger pool of people going out to uh, to vote. But I'm curious what you think about the media calling a winner of the Hawkeye Hawkeye before people even began caucusing. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Look, my belief is clearly the media can do this. They are protected by the First Amendment. They have every right to. But I don't think they should. I think this is something that we've seen in election after election. When people are told their caucus or their vote doesn't matter, they don't show up, especially for something as labor-intensive as a caucus. Because, again, you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I could work an extra shift, make an extra 90 bucks tonight, or I can go and caucus for my favorite candidate when the outcome is already decided. What do you think most people are going to do? I think a lot of people would say, all right, my guy won. I'm not going to bother. Or my guy lost. I'm not going to bother. But I think the decision to publish this by the media, and again, this is a left-wing, right-wing thing, I think this, um, I think it's really inappropriate. No votes had been cast at some location when The Associated Press and the TV networks projected Donald Trump as the winner half an hour after the caucuses began. And you had these smartphones buzzing at 7.30 p.m. Central just a half hour after the caucuses began. Many Iowans didn't have a chance to vote. And look, I mean, the outcome was as expected. Maybe it would have been a bigger deal if it was a little bit more competitive. But still. I just don't think uh, people should do this before everyone has had a chance to vote. And even, look, even uh, Congressman uh, Chip Roy, who's an ally of Ron DeSantis, he raised an issue with this. He said, are you kidding me? They haven't even started voting yet and heard all the speeches and AP calls it? All right, I I get it. I I I get why people are upset about this. So well, let me know what you think. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. I uh, also want to welcome back Matt Blaze, who we have uh, not had with us for the last two days. And that led to all sorts of weird things. Dead air in some places. Microphones going silent all of a sudden. All sorts of other things. It is uh, nice to have Matt Blaze back where he belongs and, you know, giving everybody a, a hard time. How are you doing, Matt Blaze? Anything terminal? I'm still ticking, Frank. All right. Still here and still ticking. All right. Well, it's good to have you back and all, all systems go, though. You seem, you know, yes. the doctors tell you you're doing okay? Yes. They say everything is all right. All right. Well, so. again, if you're, um, you know, just making sure that your will is, you know, in order, keep us in mind here. Keep us in mind. You know, you know I know you don't have any children. Just keep uh, Tony and me and maybe Elias in mind. We're with you for a good portion of the day. And I think it'd be a little nice, a little yeah. Can we little, you something want to, for the can effort. we talk about that? that sure. That text, Frank, that I got. You know, I got a, <laughs> I got a text. It was a group text that I texted Tony, Elias, Frank, and Dominic Carter that I wasn't going to be in. Dominic hosts the show before Frank's, and you know, Dominic. I said I wasn't going to be in. Dominic said, "Oh, you know, be well, be safe, take care of yourself." Tony said prayers. Elias said, "You know, wish you well." 
And then I said, I'll be back. <laughs> and Dominic once again said, oh, man, take care of yourself. Make sure. Now, let me just read. This is what I got from everyone else. <laughs> but let me read uh, right off. I don't want to get it wrong. So let me read exactly what Frank said. Please. To uh, this, this text. Uh, I got to find it here. Hold on. Yeah. See? See, he's got to make it up. <laughs> That's it what it sounds like. <laughs> no, no, no. So, uh, so glad to hear you were feeling better. That was from Dominic. And I said, thanks, Dom. I appreciate that. Frank's text was, he's just trying to get a place in your will. I admire that. <laughs> and then Dominic smiled to that, by the way. Because so I don't know that he's not in the I'm, I'm looking all at either. all these guys. I'm looking at all these guys talking to you as if you're Lou Gehrig, uh, you know, about to give his final address before Yankees. We were showing some compassion, <laughs> man. Okay, look, the man had to go to the emergency room. I was getting depressed. I was getting depressed reading these texts. My goodness, I had no idea. By the way, I have no problem saying what it was. I had a a thing, a little, I'd say a little bit of a scare. I wasn't that scared, but I felt the pain in my chest, a a, a little uh, numbness in my arm, a tightening more or less, and I went to the ER. And look, I, I, I'm saying this because everybody should do this. People think, oh, it's no big deal. And I've heard too many stories of people thinking that and then winding up in surgery. Right. Something like that. So that's the reason why I went. So I'm in there and they're looking at my EKG and they're looking at my blood and all this stuff. And they asked me, they said, you know, what do you, where do you work and do you do any heavy lifting? They want to see if they had any stress. And I said, no. I said, you know, I, I work in radio overnight, and they said, oh, 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 where? And I said, WABC. And they said, overnight. And I said, yeah. And they said, Frank Morano? And I said, yeah. And they said, oh, no wonder why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's said, good. It's good. They to- said, they, and then they were like, we thought you'd be here sooner. <laughs> well, Understandable, uh, but you're okay. It seems. Yes. All right. Well, it's we're happy to happy to have you back. I uh, I was not about to join the chorus of people buying funeral clothes to uh, to you know. We were not trying to buy funeral clothes. Only thing we was like, look, we were being concerned for our coworker, our friend. That's when I said prayers up. We were not we were we were not trying to get our suits. Elias was in touch with the Make a Wish Foundation. See, (laughs) trying to get. Matt plays a visit from Hulk Hogan. I mean, it was really, really something. I think I would you guys have added to, a little carried away. I would have added to John Cena being the number one Make a Wish guy. <laughs> so be it. All right, uh, but apparently, you know, Matt Blaze's, you know, sudden issue with the sudden pain issue, it jived with the media calling Iowa for Trump before people had even voted. Right around the time, ABC, CBS, Fox News, and NBC projected Trump as the winner. That's when Matt had this sudden health issue. Is there a correlation? I don't know. But um, for these networks, CNN, uh, to say they collected enough data to announce a race call before it even starts, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous in my view. All right, 800-848-9222. Just wait. Just wait. Why do you have to know before people vote who won? Let people vote. 800-848-9220. And this is not a Republican issue, Democrat issue, independent issue. I would say this if they had done this in a Democratic caucus or in a general election. I think it's wildly inappropriate. Uh, Al is in Yonkers. Al, what do you think? Frank, uh, Frank, I agree with you. I think it's inappropriate for the uh, 
the media to call the race before people can come out and vote in a caucus or a primary. And as you recollect, Frank, in 2020, it was a big issue when Fox and their main inside guy uh, called the election uh, early. Arizona and the Trump camp, uh, rightly so, were up in arms. And not not too long after that, that guy lost his job. So uh, it is inappropriate, and I agree with you. Well, I, that I I see what you're saying, and there is a similarity there. But there's two big differences. When Steyerwald, I think it was Chris Steyerwald, that made the call to um, okay. to award Arizona for uh, for, uh, for Biden, at least people had finished voting, right? The votes yes. hadn't been finished counting. That's true. But at okay. least they had they had finished voting. So you were not going to cause anyone to stay home that was otherwise going to come out and vote. The other thing is, the way you phrased it, Al, when you said, you know, you think it's wrong, and, and I agree with you, but when you say you think it's wrong for the media to call this before people come out in either a primary or a caucus, it's so much worse in a caucus because okay. when we're talking uh, the Iowa caucus, it was negative four degrees outside, wow. and it's not like you go in there and check a box. You have to stay there for hours and argue. So you're thinking to yourself, okay, do I want to work? Do I want to put my kid to bed? Do I want to stay home, shovel, and have a little hot chocolate when I already know the outcome? With a primary, in most cases, it's a quick pop-in, check-the-box of who you want to vote for, and pop out. So I think, and it's one of the reasons, and the weather I'm sure played a role, this was one of the lowest turnout Iowa caucuses in history. And I speculate that's one of the reasons why. All right. Thanks, Al. Great call. Oh, thank you, Frank. Sure. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. Uh, coming up in about 10 minutes, we're going to talk with Donald Jeffries. We've been spending a lot of time uh, talking about this Martin Luther King Jr. assassination. And I have to tell you, I- I've looked into this every day. And when I leave the air, I just keep doing homework on this. On uh, other issues, too. But I've become obsessed with this Martin Luther King Jr. assassination. I've always been fascinated by it, and I've always been bothered by the fact that nobody talks about that 1999 civil trial. But the more I look into this, the more I do think it was a conspiracy to kill Martin Luther King. And uh, we're going to talk with Donald Jeffries in uh, about 10 minutes, who's done a lot of work into assassination research, and we'll get his take on what the story was when when it comes to Martin Luther King Jr. And then uh, in a couple hours, we'll chat chat with uh, Ambassador Peter Ford, the former British ambassador to Syria and Bahrain, about what's happening in the Middle East. Spoiler alert, nothing good is happening in the Middle East. Only bad things are happening in the Middle East. We'll get his insight um, in just a bit. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Igor in New Jersey. Hi, Igor. Greetings, Frank. Before I ask you the question about uh, the press and what some of the rules are, you mentioned about uh, his will, and you mentioned me, Tony, and maybe Elias. So why maybe Elias? Well, a couple of reasons. One, uh, I think you know he. I don't know that he's uh, he works as 
closely with Elias as he does Tony and me. And Elias just came back, right? So he has more of a history with Tony and me. And then lastly, you know, Tony and I are, are older guys. We probably have more pressing financial needs. I, again, I don't know Elias's financial situation. But if I'm sizing up the situation, I think Tony and I probably need the money a little bit more than Elias does. Elias has his whole life to go out and make some money. Very good, Frank. Hey, so here's my question. First of all, of course, I agree with you. The press is, is no, telling what they know way too soon. But I wanted to ask you, is there a firm end time to the caucus in the evening? And if this was a primary instead of a caucus, aren't there rules associated with, ha- with what the press can say until the polls formally close? Um I don't think so. I think it's really it's really just kind of standard uh, standard practices, uh, standard practice. But um, the, the the yeah the end time you have an hour right. So the the end time was uh, eight p.m. Central. The start time for when they actually begin caucusing was seven p.m. Central. So I think it wouldn't have. Um, oh, excuse me. Well, yeah, no, it was. Um, well, let me let me double check that. It might even be two hours in terms of how long you have to uh how long you have to caucus but um i think that uh it's just kind of standard practice that they not do this when it comes to elections see as i mentioned the caucuses are are privately funded affairs so everything's out out the window the parties pay for this themselves which a lot of people say is a you know there's a better system so um as far as the caucuses go they go about an hour before the vote counting commences they there can be timing differences in the various precincts throughout the state because they differ in size some places it may take more than an hour but as a general rule of thumb it's about an hour which only goes to reinforce my view that these networks could have easily just waited a half hour until people were largely done caucusing Thank you, Igor. 800-848-9222. Roy is in Cincinnati. Hello, Roy. Hey, what's happening? Okay. Listen, uh, I, uh, yeah, they, they shouldn't project the winner before the, the actual vote. I, can, I agree with that one. But if you're going to get, if I'm going into a car and it's freezing, ass, freezing cold out there, I am going to where I'm going to go, and I don't think it made one difference last night. Really? Okay. You might be right. You might be right. Look. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. But uh, so I don't think about that. I mean, I I just I know myself. I don't. I ain't going to believe no projections. But especially this paranoid people about the press anyway. I'm going there, and I'm going to get. If I'm going to get this done, I don't care. I, I mean, Bernie Sanders. Democrat, and if I had, if I got to get in the car, and I hate the cold, and in the cold to go somewhere, I'm going to go. I mean, I'm telling you what, I, I, I went to a was going. Our governor got reelected, and I went down to that office to make sure to be with the fellows. And I was pissed off because oh, I get home. it, I get it. So I'm, I'm just like that, and it wasn't cold back then. I forget it. So, but. uh yeah, I agree. In a casual something, like I'm used to a primary system here. I guess that's more of a that's somebody more casual. If you're intense enough to go do that, and uh, but I, yeah, I agree. It's it's not good, I, and I don't know what to do about it because there is freedom of 
Of course, right. Please, and I, I don't know what, what there is either. I mean, my hope would be that these media organizations would not report on their projections of who wins until everybody has finished voting. I mean, I don't think that's an unreasonable position. They should. They should do that. They should respect you know, uh, that stuff, uh, uh, but they don't have to. Mm-hmm. And people have to understand that just because they report it, they, people on the other end got to just know that, you know, if it's, a, if it's a report, that doesn't mean it's the actual thing. Yeah. Roy, and thanks. Thanks for the call. I appreciate the perspective. I got to take a break uh, because we're going to talk with Donald Jeffries in a moment. We're going to talk a little bit about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Was it a conspiracy? For years, the official story was that James Earl Ray had acted alone, just like Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, just like Sirhan Sirhan acted alone. Well, in 1999, there was a trial, a civil trial, that no one talks about, which found the precise opposite of James Earl Ray acting alone. We'll get Donald Jeffrey's take on what he thinks happened, what he thinks happened, and on the uh, Martin Luther King Jr. assassination in general. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is Kyrie, Mr. Mister, a birthday bumper music selection from my very good friend, uh, Tracy Fontano, who was celebrating her birthday today. Well, uh, two days ago was January 15th. That is the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr., and he would have been 95 had he had lived. Obviously, he didn't live. Because he was killed in uh, April of 1968. The official story was that um, he was killed by James Earl Ray. Well, almost right away, there were those who doubted the official story of James Earl Ray 
being the lone assassin of Martin Luther King Jr. In 1977, James Earl Ray himself did an interview with the Washington Post, essentially saying that he was framed by someone named Raul. Listen to this. So you heard uh, you heard the news on, on the radio? Is yes. that the way you heard yeah. it? So you were driving, you left that, that gas station at 2nd and Linden, what, about 6 or... I don't have any way of knowing, I think it's around that time, but mm-hmm. I don't even know if it's Linden. I know where the approximate area is. And mm-hmm. I've seen the map on the Inquirer. And, uh, mm-hmm. and you were going back to uh, to pick up this man that you say is Raul? Is no, way? I just waiting the car back. So you heard all this confusion, had turned and flipped on the radio, they said Dr. King's been shot. Uh, at that, did you think you were set up at that point? I uh, know I was headed towards toward New Orleans when I had the radio on. I used to keep the radio on. I think uh, I didn't I have too strong feelings about the, the shooting. Uh, when, when you met Raul, you, did you, you didn't know any other name for him. That's the name that he said was his, and that, that's all you ever knew. Yeah, I did. Just know. Mm-hmm. And you met him where? Canada. Up in Canada. Yeah. And uh, and you just met in a saloon? or? It was a saloon in, in a waterfront area of uh, Montreal. Mm-hmm. You never became good friends then? Uh, no, I wasn't good friends. Mm-hmm. Just business. Uh, mm-hmm. These were all aliases, uh, I assume. Uh, you don't think Raul was a real name at all, then? Huh? No, I've got some Freedom of Information papers in there saying there's Raul Santiago or something. New Orleans is supposed to be a him, but uh, I don't have the FBI. That's material from the FBI files, but I don't have no uh, nothing to substantiate that. So you think their mind was made up when they got you? Well, it had to be made up. Uh, I, they couldn't. Uh, uh, well, I don't know what if there's any penalty for uh, extraditing someone fraudulently or not, but I think uh, I can see their legal point where they've got to stick with their story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was 1977. 1993, Lloyd Jowers appeared on ABC News. He was a restaurateur and the owner of Jim's Grill, a restaurant in Memphis, Tennessee. And he claimed that he was paid $100,000 by a Memphis mobster to help organize the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Even Jesse Jackson, who was with Martin Luther King Jr. when King was assassinated and subsequently wore his blood-stained shirt, meaning King's blood on Jackson's shirt, for days following King's assassination, he is said that he has never believed the official story that James Earl Ray acted alone. Here was uh, Jesse Jackson on a uh, on a program called In Depth with Graham Bensinger talking about this. James Earl Ray, who was convicted of killing Dr. King, why have you said before you believe he didn't act alone? He, he didn't have the money. The motive of the organization skills to do it. Uh, a lone killer getting out of town at six o'clock, getting into Mississippi and all that, end up in London. He couldn't have done that by himself. What do you think happened? Government was very involved. You think so? To what extent do you think J. Edgar Hoover 
played a role in... I have no idea. That gets into too much detail, man, except I know this guy couldn't do it by himself. The government was very involved. Now, it's not just Jesse Jackson saying that. In 1999, a jury decided that there was a conspiracy perpetuated by Jowers and that other conspirators, including various government agencies, murdered King and framed James Earl Ray as a patsy. Someone who has a lot of experience analyzing assassinations is uh, Donald Jeffries. He's an assassination researcher and an author of several books, including Hidden History, an expose of modern crimes, conspiracies, and cover-ups in American politics. Donald, it's been a long time since I had you on the radio. It's nice to have you back. Good to talk to you again, Frank. Thanks for having me on. Sure thing. Uh, Donald, so you heard kind of my introduction and the context. Give us your view. What does your research suggest about what happened to Martin Luther King and who was responsible for his assassination? Well, I think, you know, if it's been honestly investigated, and these things are never honestly investigated, obviously. That's why I, I never run out of things to write about. But, um, you know, the FBI uh, sent King a letter in the uh, mid-1960s, I forget how many years it was before uh, they kill- he was killed, but uh, which basically is, you know, it was, it was made public knowledge uh, later, and it's an, a very veiled threat to just, you know, basically said, there's only one thing left for you to do, King. And they basically said, you know, you need to kill yourself. And was, that's an astonishing thing, you know, for the FBI to do. Uh, we know there was so much stuff going on at the time. King had just uh, gone beyond the Civil Rights Movement. He was ready to lead the Poor People's March on Washington, D.C., which would have been a whole different thing if he had lived. Uh, it went on without him, and it wasn't the same at all. But we know just that with the, the uh, what I've said in research, we know, for instance, that iconic photo of uh, uh, a man uh, cradling King's head uh, in his hands on the uh, balcony of the Lorraine Motel was uh, we we know now yeah I think he's still alive it, he was an undercover CIA agent we know that Martin Luther King's chauffeur was an undercover government agent and in fact the guy who owned the Lorraine Motel was an undercover government agent so and you mentioned Jesse Jackson in the bloodstained shirt uh, you know the rest of the civil rights movement was incensed at Jesse Jackson because that was that was a, a lie that he told to be fabricated he he not he wanted to make himself bigger and wanted to take over. The movement and uh, Ralph Abernathy was King's second in command. Was especially incensed by that. And Abernathy was one of the first ones to uh, to raise doubts about uh, James Earl Ray's guilt. I mean, race. There, there was never anything to tie him to the assassination, uh, other than you had one witness who was uh, a guy named Charlie Stevens, who was uh, a resident at the boarding house where uh, Ray was staying across the across from the Lorraine Motel, and supposedly fired the shot from uh, the uh, bathroom there. And supposedly Charlie Stevens, the government, used him to say that he saw Ray going towards the bathroom. And uh, his his wife, Grace Stevens, uh, you know, told everyone, including Mark Lane, who was already investigating that, like he did the JFK assassination, that uh, no, he was he was dead drunk like he always was. He couldn't have seen anybody or recognized anyone. And the what happened is they retaliated against her by putting her in a mental institution where she spent several years. So that, they play for keeps, and uh, we mentioned Raul. Because the crime was never investigated, we don't really know who Raul was or what that was. And uh, Ray, much as Sirhan Sirhan, that's a really bad representation early on. The same thing happened to uh, to James Earl Ray, and he, he mistakenly uh, copped to a plea early on because he basically was told he was going to be you know put to death otherwise, and then 
he instantly realized his mistake, and then from that moment on, he always said, you know, I didn't do it, and came up with the Raul thing. And interestingly, unlike the Kennedy family, which was late coming to the party in RFK Jr., uh, the King family was, was on board right from the beginning and doubting it. Uh, you had uh, Dexter King especially went to prison and visited James R. Ray and mm-hmm. advocated for a new trial, as did Coretta Scott King. At age, you know, they were per- real profiles encouraged. At, at an advanced age, Coretta Scott King traveled across state lines to testify for James R. Ray to get a new trial, and so, and so did Dexter King. So uh, there's, you know, there's, there again, there's, there's, there's nothing there. There's a lot of dubious things. You mentioned the Jowers trial, where the jury found them guilty, and that to almost no notice in the media. You think that would right. be a, a big story? And it's something that's been almost ignored by history. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and that's what happens in all these cases. But and it's ironic because Martin Luther King, in many ways, he's uh, he's an I- iconic figure who. Um, you know, you get, you get in trouble if you criticize him, if you talk about something, you know, that maybe he plagiarized something in college or whatever, or maybe he had affairs with women, uh, then you're you're canceled if you do that. But they've never wanted to get at the truth of his death. And uh, it's, you know, it's nice to see Jesse Jackson say that now, but, you know, when they, and I, I remember, you know, Mark Lane was uh, kind of my mentor. I, when I was a teenage volunteer. That's where I got started in this. I volunteered and headed up a chapter of his uh, group, the Citizens Committee of Inquiry, in the mid-1970s, and we were trying to lobby Congress to reopen the, all the assassinations of the 60s. And they ended up, the House Select Committee of Assassinations did investigate JFK and MLK, not RFK. And uh, I remember Mark Lane telling the story, Walter Fonroy, who was the, the D.C. delegate to Congress at that time, uh, that he, he basically was almost in tears with with Mark because Mark, Mark Lane was saying, you know, how can you know, you know that the that you know that James Orr didn't do this to Martin, and uh, you know Fauntroy was just torn. He could tell, you know, this is something he had to go along with this story. He couldn't tell the truth, and uh, this is you know it's it's this is what we find in all of these uh, events. But certainly um, the Martin Luther King assassination is is. Very obvious, and unfortunately, James O. Ray died. You know, that's what there's still hope, maybe, for Sirhan Sirhan. He's the only one of those assassins, alleged assassins that's still alive. Uh, but, you know, James O. Ray, you know, pro- professed his innocence for many years. And unfortunately, uh, he never really got to uh, to uh, be vindicated. And again, despite King, uh, King's family, uh, you know, being all in favor of, of getting a new trial and, in fact, believing that he didn't. Now, when you say um, these things are never properly investigated, I guess meaning assassinations, why is that? I mean, we have seen um, various administrations in Washington, Republican, Democrat, from very different walks of life, very different types of people in roles like head of the FBI or attorney general. Wouldn't there be someone that would welcome the opportunity to uh, blame their predecessor and say, you see, I, we had nothing to do with this, but we want the credit for solving this once and for all. I mean, Donald Trump comes, for instance, uh, to mind as someone that would love to say, you know, none of these other presidents told you the truth about XYZ assassination. Well, we did an exhaustive investigation. Here's the truth. Why, in your view, are these assassinations never properly investigated? Well, I think that's what leads so many people down the rabbit holes, and that's why you have such an explosive growth of the uh, conspiracy world and the alternative media, because these things are never, and the more you dig and scratch the surfaces of these things, you do go down to the bottom of the rabbit hole. Donald Trump's a perfect example. You know, when my first nonfiction book, Hidden History, was published, 
Roger Stone contacted me, uh, and he loved the book, and he ended up writing the forward, the forward to the paperback edition. But um, he was telling me Donald Trump was just entering politics, and he was saying, you know, you're going to love this guy. I've known him for 30 years, and he knows about all the conspiracies. I thought, well, okay. And he did allude to those things, but once he got into office, again, he he danced around it, and and he would not, you know, he he would just kind of nibble around the edges. And uh, I, you know, for instance, the JFK files, you know, he was talking about I'm right. going to release these, and then he ended up not releasing them. Uh, and so, you know, this, this is I I don't know if they hold a gun to these guys' heads or if they. Uh, they make them you know, offers they can't refuse, or they just, you know, I, I have no idea, but it certainly looks that way because you're right. I mean, it's so, you just look at any, certainly any of the assassinations of the 60s, it doesn't take very long to, to study the evidence in the JFK assassination, MLK or RFK, to realize, wow, whatever happened, the official story is impossible. But, and, and just, it doesn't take much research to do that, but whatever happens is that no matter how many books are written about it, um, films like Oliver Stone's JFK and so forth, uh, and the fact that a majority of the public has always, uh, you know, disbelieved these, these official versions of the assassinations. Anyhow, that's what officially happens. It's not like, you know, when Epstein, I, I don't think anybody thinks Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. Remember, Epstein didn't kill himself. Probably, I would say, 90% of the public you know, didn't think that he did. And yet, you know, what was the official, uh, you know, the, the conclusion? So that's what happens, and that's why... Uh, the, the so-called conspiracy theories uh, continue to flourish because the official stories that were told leave so much to be desired, leave so many questions answered that it's impossible not to speculate and to doubt. And so, you know, they they try to demonize people like us that uh, write about these things. But I I, I tell people I I'm a conspiracy analyst. Mm-hmm. These, there's, and you know, I, I have no theory. I tell people all the time, read my work, and if you can tell me what my theory is, let me know. Well, it, let's I'm, talk. Just go back to the Martin Luther King situation for just a second. And if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Donald Jeffries. Uh, you could check out his uh, website, Donald Jeffries. Dot media. There's a, a ton of interesting stuff on there, not just related to the Martin Luther King assassination, but a lot of other instances throughout uh, throughout American history. What specific evidence do you find the most compelling in support of the idea that there was a conspiracy to kill Martin Luther King? If people are going to get one key takeaway from our discussion, what is it? What's the, in your view, the most compelling evidence? Well, in most of these cases, what I usually do is I look at what they claim happened and I analyze. I think the most compelling evidence in any of these cases is the impossibility of their version of events. And in this case, I would say that if you're looking for a suspect, if I was investigating it, the first group I'd look at would be the FBI, because the FBI, we have that letter that they sent him. We know J. Edgar Hoover hated him and uh, was trying to get, you know, uh, blackmail evidence on him and supposedly recording him having sex and everything. He was desperate to try to discredit him, but they have that letter out there that basically says, hey, you know there's only one thing for you to do. So if I'm starting the investigation, that's who I'm going to look at, and that's basically kind of what happened in the Jowers trial. It was not really the FBI, but it was that kind of racist feeling, that the sentiment that supposedly fueled it. But I would look in that direction. I certainly, and James R. Ray, the evidence against him is, is, is so lacking. There was, and, and again, it was so obvious. There was a little bundle, like with a gun and clothing and stuff, that was that was found in the door that he conveniently left in the doorway of the Orlando Hotel, which is, you know, doesn't even happen in the in the corniest movies. And then he goes and flees to Canada and has, uh, you know, uses a couple aliases, and they, they took a while to, to find him and everything. 
he comes up with the Raul story, which is, you know, it's kind of hard to understand, but what is the evidence against him? As I said, there was one witness uh, who was, uh, according to his wife, was too drunk at the time and passed out and couldn't have seen anything. And uh, that's the evidence that we had. There was a ballistics evidence at the scene. Life of witnesses saying that um, the, uh, the the shot came from the bushes below, you know, kind of like the grassy knoll in the JFK assassination, and not from the uh, bathroom window of the boarding house. So, and and I would look again. It's in all these cases, you know, why why were there three three pretty key figures that were there surrounding that they were all un- working for the government? Either the owner of the Lorraine Motel, which is where he happened to stay. The, the guy who was, you know, apparently first on the scene, holding his head in his hand on the um, on the balcony, and his chauffeur. So, uh, you know, th- these are th- these are questions that it should be asked in any real investigation, but they weren't. So you, you ask for one piece of evidence. I mean, you know, it's, it's a little easier in the JFK assassination because you can just look at JFK's wounds and, and, and look at the alleged weapon and so forth, and that's impossible. Here it's a little... It's not quite that uh, cut and dry, but, you know, what is the evidence against James Lorraine, especially when you look at uh, these other assassinations? They all have the same questions, and they, it's, it's always a, a really convoluted mm-hmm. effort to try to attribute it to a, uh, a lone nut. And in, in the case of James O'Reilly, he just didn't fit the, he didn't fit the pattern at all. There was not, not only no motivation, I mean, he, he may, it may have been a racist in the sense that almost everybody maybe in his income level at that time were, you know, racist right. in some way. But there's no evidence he was political at all, and he had never, he was a petty thief, uh, but he never commit he never uh, committed an act of violence. I mean, he, he robbed, he was a, you know, he was a robber, but uh, he never, uh, you know, used a gun or never hurt anybody. So for him to suddenly become an assassin, you know, you have to, you have to come up with an explanation for why somebody would kind of switch Donald, from being. <clears throat> let me let me ask you one last question. We've been talking with Donald Jeffries. You can check out his website, donaldjeffries.net. A lot of folks, excuse me, donaldjeffries.media. A lot of folks are going to hear this interview and other interviews I've conducted on other uh, assassinations with other people that have been described as conspiracy theorists. And they're saying, well, look, there's clearly a lot of money to be made selling books saying that the official version isn't true. People don't necessarily rush to have you on radio and on television. And uh, there are not a lot of books to be written saying, yep, everything the government said is correct. Oh. What do you say to naysayers in our audience, Donald, who may say that you may have uh, a vested interest, either in publicity, financial, or a combination, in claiming that there was a conspiracy, in finding a conspiracy, even when there's not? Well, I can speak for myself. I can tell you that if I'm trying to make money from doing this, I haven't done a very good job of it. Uh, <laughs> most people, most of these books that are, for instance, out of the whole assassination, there's nobody that made it. Writing a book about Martin Luther King's assassination. In fact, the only one that did would have been the official story, Gerald Frank, who wrote a book about the Boston Strangler. He wrote a story saying James R. Ray did it. He made money. Uh, in the JFK assassination, the only people that made money were people like Bugliosi, who was given a huge contract to, to write an incredibly uh, you know, uh, inaccurate book. Uh, reclaiming history, and uh, but Mark Lane made a little money in the '60s with Rush to Judgment. David Lifton, I think, made some money with Best Evans. But most of the you know thousands of books written about the JFK assassination, none of the others made any more money. My my book, Hidden History, has done pretty well for this day and age. 
but I didn't make very much money on it. So it was, if it was my, if I wanted to make money, to be honest with you, what you would do is I would come out and, or I don't have a big enough name to do it. But if I had a big enough name to do it, I would do like Mark Furman did. If you remember him, he, he, sure. was, he was originally a believer in conspiracy, right. and he made a big flip flop when he was in the news of the OJ trial and decided to say Oswald did it. He got a he got a nice book contract for that. I, if I had a name, that's what I would do. I would say, you know, I was wrong, and I realize now, you know, and I, I would flip flop. And you could probably get a big contract because the establishment's anxious <laughs> right, to right. push that. I, I get that. Donald, I appreciate the time. Let's chat again soon. Absolutely, Frank. Thanks for having me. Donald Jeffries, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. You know, I've thought about many situations. And when a man just thinks and thinks and thinks, he tends to know that what he's thinking is not necessarily true or reality. But everything that I've thought about and dreamed about and wondered about. The great Barry White. Another uh, birthday bumper music selection from the great Tracy Fontaino, who is years old today. Uh, You know what I've never understood? Why do people that I've never met, never spoken to in some cases, and have never read their books... Send me requests for endorsements for their new book. I just got, I'm catching up on my email now, and I just saw this note in the commercial break here. And I'm not going to say who it is because, for all I know, this might be the best book ever. But I, I haven't read it, and <laughs> this person writes me, uh, dear Frank Morano, on behalf of so and so and so and so, I'm writing to invite you to consider writing a promotional endorsement for the forthcoming book, blankety blank, blank, blank. Get the inside scoop on blank, blank, blank. And if you're interested, please let me know. I'll email you a copy. We'd like to receive the endorsement by January 9th, 2024. Now, today's January 17th. I just got this email. I mean, what goes on? I don't understand. Keep asking questions. 800-848-9222. 